Krista, Syna Božia, jedinoročne blížil do celosti na pokrešte cietvie, Good afternoon. You're listening to the Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Rachel Harkai. Our guest today is author and poet Christopher Merrill. He has published four collections of poetry, including a collection titled Watchfire, for which he received the Peter I. B. Lavin Younger Poets Award from the Academy of American Poets. He's published four works of nonfiction, including multiple works discussing his time as a war correspondent during the Balkan Wars. Christopher Merrill has held the William H. Jenks Chair in Contemporary Letters at the College of the Holy Cross and now directs the International Writing Program at the University of Iowa. His work has been translated into 20 languages, and today we will be discussing his most recent work of nonfiction titled Things of the Hidden God, Journey to the Holy Mountain. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to have you on the show. Nice to be here. Well, before we um, before we delve into the book, I, I wanted to give our uh, listeners a little bit of background information on exactly where you were and um, what this book was about. Um, your newest book is an account of three pilgrimages that you made um, to Mount Athos in Greece in the late 1990s. Is that correct? Yes. Um, where exactly is Mount Athos? Well, Mount Athos is a monastic republic, about 250 square miles in northern Greece. Uh, there are three peninsulas that uh, jut out from uh, uh, the, a larger peninsula near Thessaloniki. And the religious tradition there is um, predominantly Eastern Orthodox. This is the this is the center of Eastern Orthodox monasticism. So there are. 20 monasteries on the holy mountain of Athos, uh, 17 of them are Greek Orthodox, and we, your listeners would know about them, but there also is a Russian Orthodox monastery, a Bulgarian Orthodox monastery, um, there's a Romanian Orthodox uh, monastery, there's a, a variety of different, different, different uh, Orthodox orders. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I was hoping that um, to get started you could read one of the passages uh, toward the beginning of your book um, describing this uh, first image you had um, of Mount Athos on your first pilgrimage as your ferry was approaching the coast. Yeah, this takes place in the late winter of 1998, and the the way onto Mount Athos in the um, in the winter, the only way on is to take a ferry down the coast. It's about a two and a half hour ride, and this is what I I saw on the way as I was coming going down the down the coast. And what I saw as the ferry began to motor down the coast were burned-out buildings not unlike what I had seen in the war. Up a steep hillside around a promontory was a small monastic settlement of gutted houses, charred walls, and a roofless chapel, an abandoned skeet, which resembled the raised villages common in Bosnia and Croatia. The surrounding hills were thick with trees, in sharp contrast to the fields, past pastures, and eroded slopes of the mainland. Spared the blight of clear-cutting which has left Greece with Europe's lowest percentage of forested land, Athos is rich in forests, in chestnut and fir and holly oak, and ecological haven 480 kilometers square, interspersed with monastic settlements ringed by terraced gardens, olive groves, and vineyards. A place apart, a poet said. 
And this is true not only in a physical sense. A stone wall topped with barbed wire runs along the northern border of the peninsula. Harbor police and speedboats patrol the coastline. But also in terms of time. The Holy Mountain follows the Julian calendar, which is 13 days behind the rest of the world. And in most of the monasteries, time is reckoned according to the medieval Byzantine system. Sunset is midnight, which means that the clocks must be reset each day. Thank you. That was author Christopher Merrill reading from his most recent work, uh, Things of the Hidden God, Journey to the Holy Mountain. Now, later in your work, you describe uh, Mount Athos as a world outside of time. Um, I was I was fascinated reading about the idiorhythmic monastic um, tradition um, of that particular area. Um, you think with such an ascetic lifestyle, um, they would be highly highly regimented by a schedule, but uh, the monks there just operate on their own schedules? Well, the story is this, is that um, Mount Athos, which has been around probably since the ninth century. It's the oldest unbroken monastic tradition in the West. Um, uh, and there are two forms of, uh, of uh, monastic living in the Orthodox world. One is Cenobitic, which is where the monks live together in a brotherhood. And indeed, the time is uh, fairly fairly well regulated uh, uh, between the offices that you celebrate, the work schedule you have, the meals that you share together. And then there's the idiorhythmic uh, uh, form of uh, gathering in, in which the monks pretty much do as they like. Um, and in in the Middle Ages, uh, around the time that the uh, uh, the Byzantine emperor, Empire uh, fell to the Ottoman Turks, uh, the idiorhythmic way of living began to take over the whole of the Holy Mountain. And uh, the funny thing is, is that over the course of the last several centuries, most people writing about uh, Athos would see that it was beginning to uh, it was kind of falling apart. It was a it was a tradition to write about Athos in in the to suggest that it, its uh, demise was imminent that the numbers of monks were going down, et cetera, et cetera. But then, uh, starting 20, 30 years ago, all of the monasteries uh, ceased to be idiorhythmic. They, they, they returned to the, the Cenobitic style. And it was around that time that, uh, with the first stirrings of the end of communism, that uh, Mount Athos, when it had reached really the lowest point, suddenly began to experience a revival. So that now, there are many more monks than there used to be 30, 40 years ago. It's a very lively place. The monks have gotten quite canny about uh, securing grants from the European Union to renovate the monasteries. There's a lot of construction going on. And uh, uh, and in some ways, one could say that the return to Cenobitic living has been a, a, a function of this revival of the Holy Mountain so that in what I was doing in this book was not so much uh, mourning the end of a way of life, but recognizing that uh, uh, there was a kind of return to a vitality that was uh, that was apparent in earlier periods of uh, Athenite history. Hmm. So, is the idio is the idiorhythmic lifestyle governed then by? Um by the schedule of religious services, or is it completely individual? Well, in, 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 for in, the monks who, who follow the idiorhythmic style, they would be living in uh, smaller settlements around the Holy Mountain. As I said, there are 20, uh, 20 monasteries, 12 skis, which look like monasteries, are quite large settlements, and then there are 
maybe 250 smaller uh, Kelly uh, uh, chapels uh, where you might have two, three, four monks living uh, together. And that what would govern their, uh, uh, you know, the schedule there, they would certainly get together uh, for the Sunday, for the vigil beginning on Saturday night, moving into Sunday morning. Uh, they might get together every day for uh, uh, the early morning service, uh, orthos. Uh, they might get together for the end of the day. Hard to know what how it would work, would work in each place. Mm-hmm. And you can only get to Mount Athos by boat, correct? Yeah, yeah. Well, you can sneak over the, climb over the the the, the fence, but that's not a great idea. Yeah, they they actually um, only allow a certain number of individuals uh, onto Mount Athos. Yeah, there's a they allow a hundred uh, Orthodox pilgrims, and everybody's a pilgrim on Mount Athos a day, and ten foreigners. Uh, that is to say, ten ten heretics. So how difficult was it for you to um, attain a permit? Well, there's a certain amount of paperwork that you have to go through. And uh, uh, on the first time I I traveled there, I I wondered if I would actually get on to the Holy Mountain. But the more I traveled there and the more I I, I found out about a group called the Friends of Mount Athos. It's a a British and American uh, philanthropic organization dedicated to uh, helping uh, the Holy Mountain revive itself. And uh, uh, and they, they, uh, uh, they, they helped me to figure out ways to, you know, to, to process the paperwork uh, more quickly. Hmm. And they don't they don't allow women on Mount Athos, is that right? Yeah, it's a funny story. The uh, uh, back in the uh, early days of the uh, Holy Mountain in the 11th and 12th century, there centuries uh, there were vlox shepherds and shepherdesses on the Holy Mountain, and the story goes that uh, the shepherdesses were providing the monks with uh, cheese, with bread, and things like that, but that the, I guess the ser- uh, some of the services that they were providing the monks went beyond that, and this uh, upset some uh, some travelers, so the uh, the Byzantine emperor uh, issued what was called an avaton, and uh, uh, which essentially which prohibited not only women from entering uh, the Holy Mountain, but even female livestock. So uh, uh, there's you know for about a thousand years there were not even any female cats. Um, and then there's a funny story that uh, back at the end of the 19th century, the uh, the Holy Mountain was being overrun by 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 adders, uh, poisonous snakes, and and the uh, cat merchants on the mainland started jacking up the prices, and so the the monks prayed to the uh, the Virgin Mother to whom the mountain is uh, is dedicated, and and the, the miracle is is that uh, overnight all the uh, all the all the male cats turned into into pregnant cats, and then the monks worried, oh my gosh, you know, now we have all these female cats on the uh, here in the Virgin's Paradise. What are we going to do? And some monks uh, wanted to drown the cats, and other monks said, uh, no, no, if we spurn this miracle, we may never get anymore so that's the story of how 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 why there are female cats on uh, Mount Athos hmm. um, now from your descriptions of your um, your journey uh, around Mount Athos it seems like there was a very a very odd mix of people who were there um, you you uh, described at times college students um, as well as established intellectuals and uh, also some very broken broken people um, you write that the monks of Mount Athos believe that prayer and counsel can cure any mental ailment. Do you think that is one of the reasons for the the strange mix of people that um, journey there? Well, I think that there's a there's such a long tradition of people making pilgrimages, and people become pilgrims for a variety of reasons. Uh, uh, 
I think many Greek males, for example, believe it is their duty to make a pilgrimage to Mount Athos uh, before before they die. So there's there's a sense of obligation. There's a sense of religious duty. Uh, other people are just curious. I met uh, some Austrian backpackers who, who clearly just wanted a cheap vacation in, in, in Greece that they could just walk or hike around in, in beautiful surroundings. But there are other people who go because they are searching, because uh, they are broken, because they are uh, hoping that uh, uh, something will happen there that will help them to understand uh, the next steps they should take in their life. So you do meet a, uh, a wide variety of people, and that's part of the, part of the, uh, the, the, the pleasure of being there, the, the, the chance encounters you have, the discussions you have that uh, uh, just truly go everywhere. Mm-hmm. In the, um, in the pro- prologue of your book... Um you write that before you went on these pilgrimages, you were yourself in a pretty deep despair about um, your current situation with your marriage and uh, your work and your health. Um, and the question, why have you come to Mount Athos, is one that uh, resurfaces again and again throughout your book. And I'm I'm curious of all the places that you could have traveled, all the places that you could have taken a pilgrimage what drew you to this particular place? Well, what happened was I had been I had spent a good part of the 1990s, from at least 92 to 95, covering the the various wars in the former Yugoslavia, uh, particularly in uh, the besieged city of Sarajevo. And during an early part of those travels, I read a, a pilgrim's account of uh, his his stay in uh, the Serbian monastery of Hilandari. This was on the front page of a government newspaper in Belgrade, 1992. And I remember thinking, gee, that's that's kind of interesting that here in a in a country that until three years before, under the communist, you would never have had any mention at all of religion. Here's a front page story about Mount Athos. So I clipped that story. I carried it with me. And I, I made a point every time after that I was in a in an Orthodox country in Greece and Bulgaria and Romania to ask people what they thought about Mount Athos. And they all they all regarded it as, as a place uh, similar in bearing to, say, uh, Rome to a Roman Catholic, Canterbury to an Anglican, uh, Mecca to a Muslim. And so I had this idea that uh, maybe even this big book I was writing about the war in Yugoslavia might uh, might end on Mount Athos. I had some kind of an intuition about that. But that book ended up in the uh, in Bosnia as as made sense, and then uh, I had the chance to be in Europe uh, soon after finishing that book, and uh, uh, for something else, I, was go- I went off to a conference, and I thought, well, maybe I'll go and check out Mount Athos while I'm while I'm here, use frequent flyer miles, and uh, see what I think of it. I didn't go with the idea of writing about it, I, although I, I I took notes as I always do. But I just really wanted to see what this uh, the world of Orthodox monasticism was all about. So it was more of a geographical preference, and there wasn't anything specific to uh, Eastern Orthodoxy that drew you there. You know what I the thing of it is is that uh, like many writers or people of my generation, you know, I grew up. Lots of my friends became Buddhists. Um, uh, many of us fell away from the church early on. And I remember once being in a zendo when I was in my twenties and thinking, you know, there must be something. There must be something in the Christian tradition closer to uh, what's going on in Buddhism, the, mysti- the mystical understanding of religion, than than what I'm hearing in in uh, my own churches. And I, so I had this I had this intuition that that might be the case in the Orthodox um, uh, tradition. I had done enough reading uh, to know that uh, that the, that that uh, Orthodox theology is 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 essentially 
a mystical theology, mm-hmm. that it, it has a lot to do with mystery. It has a lot to do with what we don't know about God. And that struck me as being uh, close to things that I, I, I probably believed as a poet, as a writer, as uh, somebody who traveled around in the world enough to know that that uh, uh, there seems to be a larger order that we may give ourselves over to from time to time than than what we imagine. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll talk more about uh, your experiences with Eastern Orthodoxy on Mount Athos in a minute. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN. We'll be right back. <laughs> Listening to the Living Writers Show. My name is Rachel Harkai, and I'm here today with author and poet Christopher Merrill discussing his latest work, Things of the Hidden God: Journey to the Holy Mountain. Now, another aspect of your book that um, really surprised me um, was how you revealed the huge emphasis placed on art um, by the monks of Mount Athos. It seemed like everywhere you went, um, there was another icon, another mural, and um, it seemed that um, predominantly the, these monks were um, very enthusiastic about your work as a poet. Yeah. Well, this is what was what was so much fun was uh, to be in a place where, as as one monk said to me, uh, uh, there are times when the heart needs to feed on beauty, and we have the icons to look at, the murals to look at, the statuary to look at, and then there are times when uh, you, you may take it in through the ear, and that's the chant that we just were listening to, uh, and sometimes you'll be reading, and that's another way to uh, glimpse some of these enduring truths, so uh, they make these very beautiful, uh, illuminating manuscripts uh, uh, and uh, and I guess it was uh, particularly for somebody coming from a Protestant uh, background where of course the emphasis is stripping down and, and uh, 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 purifying um, to go into a place where uh, uh, the, the soul is is sometimes just overflowing with the richness of the world uh, that was also and, and the incense and uh, you know the, the sense of mystery the hushed uh, light uh, that that, uh, that that was revelatory mm-hmm. yeah I, I agree I was very encouraged by the um, by the way in which um, that particular tradition viewed um, art as a way to bolster faith rather than uh, distraction from it yeah, no, everything as as one monk said to me uh, uh, he said yes it, it's a uh, it may be viewed as a distraction for me to be talking to you but you never know when something that you say or some gesture that you make uh, may turn someone toward God and I realized that's in some ways what uh, all of the monks are doing whether they're they're saying the Jesus prayer 10 or 12,000 times a day or they're chanting these beautiful uh, lines of uh, the Byzantine uh, rite um, that in, in one way or another, they are preparing themselves for eternity, but insofar as they bounce off of uh, the visiting the pilgrims coming through, they may also uh, alert them to uh, other ways to be in the world. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you, you have a, a beautiful passage um, in the book um, during your second pilgrimage when you 
uh, encounter an iconographer um, in a book bindery in one of these monasteries. I was hoping that you would read that for us. Yeah. Well, just to set this up, as as you said, the the, the book begins, I mean, with out of a sense of despair about various issues from the exhaustion that comes from writing about the war to complications in uh, my marriage to the uh, being a new father uh, uh, to a poetic crisis. And uh, at this point in the book, I had gone back, uh, uh, I, I made one pilgrimage there, and I really felt so deeply alienated from the uh, the world in in which I had, had found myself, and and then uh, because really almost by chance I found myself back back there again in the summer, and I I'd spent about four or five, maybe six days walking around, and I was beginning to think this is. Uh, what am I doing? I'm in Greece in the middle of the summer, and I'm, uh, I'm uh, in these monasteries. And and then I uh, I wandered into I went into this monastery almost by chance. I had thought I might uh, I might I might just bypass it. And then I I went there. I met a monk about my age, same kind of background as me. He'd been a music uh, video editor in London. Uh, uh, we were about the same age, and we we really became good friends. And uh, at a certain point, uh, he took me down into the cellar to uh, to show me what you know, sort of the inner workings of a monastery. And that's what this scene is, the beginning of the scene. The air was cooler in the cellars, the mysterious world of stone at the bottom of a dark staircase, which the cellarer unlocked for me after everyone had gone to bed. What joy I felt in the book bindery where monks used a letterpress to produce miniature leather-bound editions of the Gospel of Mark and the axe for the abbot to give away. The lead type and bevels, bottles of ink and sheets of paper, these were for me emblems of a sacred order. A cure even seemed within reach for the vertigo I experienced at any intimation of immortality, the sensation that I was on a cliff crumbling into the sea. Across the room was an easel, and as I examined an iconographer's discarded efforts, an icon must be completed in one sitting before the egg tempera dries, hence the number of failures. The monk described an art that only appears to be formulaic. The figure's given, the colors are given, he said, and this gives you real freedom. You have no idea what freedom such a tradition offers. Think how much you can do with the eyes or the shading. True tyranny is a blank canvas. Thank you. That was author Christopher Merrill reading from um, his latest work. Now, before you went on your pilgrimages, um, I mean, you talk a lot about how you were searching for spiritual inspiration, um, but in terms of your art and your poetry, did you feel like your mind at that point was a blank canvas? Well, I didn't feel so much like it was a blank canvas. It was that I had spent uh, really seven years uh, in a war zone um, and and doing an awful lot of journalism, uh, which for me was not only the... we conveniently called journalism the first draft of history, but the journalism was for me also the first draft of uh, of the book I was writing, of the, the two books I ended up writing about the war. So there was a way in which uh, trying to make enough money as a journalist, trying to uh, chase down story after story, and then writing so much prose had, in effect, pushed the poetry off to the side. And, uh, uh, and then having completed this big project, it's a very long book I had written, um, uh, I found myself well, yeah, feeling feeling depleted, but also wondering what my relationship to poetry might be in the same way that I was wondering what was my relationship to so many parts of, of my life. Mm-hmm. At one point you mentioned how, um, like, T.S. Eliot and the composer Arvo Part, um, you, were sorting, you were sort of searching for a return to origins for inspiration, both spiritually 
and artistically. Yeah. Well, that's a f- kind of a funny scene. I, I, I was on, on my way across the ocean to uh, to give a talk, and I, uh, I uh, uh, had... I think pretty severe uh, food poisoning, and I uh, <laughs> was was uh, couldn't sleep all night. And I, uh, with the talk I was going to give, was about Elliot, and I was, so I was reading and rereading the four quartets and listening to music on my uh, uh, headset in the middle of the night. Everybody else around me was asleep, and I was feeling lousy and reading this poem. And then suddenly, uh, uh, this piece of music by Arva Part came on. Uh, a great Estonian composer who. Took so much has taken so much inspiration from the Byzantine liturgy uh, in in his immersion or reimmersion in the Orthodox world. He's found his own idiom as a composer, which is uh, 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 I think uh, won him listeners all over the world. And and suddenly I heard this piece of music I hadn't heard before, uh, Spiegel in Spiegel, mirror on mirror, and. Uh, uh, and reading the Eliot at some, you know, and and being sick and being up in the middle of the over the ocean, uh, I've, I found myself uh, just almost weeping and, and thinking, oh my God, this is, you know, something had something had cracked open in my soul, and uh, uh, I began to understand something about the relationship between poetry and art and music and uh, and, and and faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm curious as to whether. You found the inspiration that you thought you were searching for um, before you left for your first pilgrimage. I'm not sure whether you were um, looking necessarily for um, specifically poetic inspiration, but at at one point, I think it might be during your second pilgrimage, you mentioned that um, at this point you realized that you were a pilgrim praying for light instead of ink. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I wouldn't say that I was actually looking for inspiration. I think that um, what I was really doing at the very beginning was I... I just I wanted to walk around this peninsula and be by myself mm-hmm. and be uh in in a a quiet place without people shooting at me that was a good <laughs> that was a good start but also to try to come to terms with what it is I had experienced over the previous uh, 7 years in the war zone um it makes me think that as we're talking about it now, that great story by Hemingway, you know, uh, the big two-hearted river where the man returns from the war and, and really nothing takes place. He's just going to go fishing. But you, you see him walking through the landscape and every every image from that landscape is of devastation. And, and, and that first piece that I read at, at, at the start of our conversation today, that was the same, in a way, the same place where I was. And uh, as I would learn later on in the uh, in my travels, uh, those those houses hadn't been blown up in a war, of course. They were just, they had caught on fire and had burned down. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's the that was the mindset I was in at that time. So really, I just wanted to walk around and, and listen to the chant and see what might happen, see if in some way there might be a cure for the sickness I felt in my soul. In You know, at the end of the day, uh, I must have been hoping that maybe uh, I might write poems again, but I also was hoping that maybe my marriage might be saved. Uh, uh, maybe I would figure out how to be a, a decent father, you know, all, the, all those kinds of things. But in that turmoil, I, I, I couldn't have articulated any of it to myself. What I was really trying to do was uh, walk around and listen to the to the chant and and uh, and pray. Mm-hmm. Um, another aspect of your work that intrigued me was this motif of silence that uh, seems to present itself um, time and again throughout throughout the work. You talk about you know the silence of the monks at points because of their ascetic lifestyle, um, the silence of God to horror and to Holocaust, um, do you think that, um, 
your time on Mount Athos change your perception of the importance of silence? Mm, I think it's a great question, and that's it, maybe it's the key question to this book because poets, of course, endure silence. Uh, between poems, uh, uh, we endure silences in our relationships with others, um, and but in the, it, it, particularly in our lives in contemporary America, there's 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 a lot of noise, uh, and uh, it was wonderful for me to get off that ferry uh, and start walking along this road and. There was complete silence except a little bit of uh, wind, little bird song, and I thought, my God, when was the last time I heard a bird sing? And you know, and, and we know we have the the TVs on, the stereos on, the you know, you're what you're doing email, you're you know, one there's one distraction after another, and to be in a place where what was most important was to concentrate on what was going on around me, to listen to that silence, to understand the richness of that silence. That seemed to me to be uh, uh, something that, that, that I needed to, uh, to, 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 to go through at that time. Mm-hmm. Do you think it was that sense of um, isolation that's derived from silence that um, perhaps drew you closer to others in your life after you returned? I think so. I think that uh, the, the, it seems to me the truly religious people that I've met, the, the holiest people that I've met through the uh, years are, are, are those who, uh, even no matter how silent they are, think of Thomas Merton, but who would write hundreds of letters over the course of a week, are the most engaged with the world because they understand that, uh, that, that the dialogue we might uh, conduct in our imaginations with God is 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 an emblem of the kind of dialogue that we should then carry on in our relationships out in the world. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to take another short break. We're going to listen to um, that particular piece you mentioned by Arvo Part, uh, Spiegel and Spiegel, which translates to Mirror in the Mirror. Um, you're listening to the Living Writers Show, and we'll be right back. This is Rachel Harkai, and you're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor 88.3. I'm here with Christopher Merrill discussing uh, his recent work, Things of the Hidden God, Journey to the Holy Mountain. Um, I had a quote. I had a quote in my mind uh, that kept resurfacing as I was reading um, reading through your work. Um, it's a quote from a Gertrude Stein essay titled Composition um, as Explanation, and she's talking about um, creation of, of writing, creation of poetry and essay. And um, she says that continuous present is one thing, and beginning again and again is another thing. These are both things. And then there is using everything. In the first book, there was a groping for a continuous present, 
and for using everything by beginning again and again. But then I said to myself, this time it will be different, and I began. I did not begin again, I just began. And um, I thought this this concept of uh, a beginning versus a new beginning um, was something that it, it just traveled throughout your piece. Um, as I was moving through the pages and sort of watching you travel through these dusty footpaths, um, with each pilgrimage you made, it felt like you were trying to create a new beginning for yourself. But by the end of the third fil- pilgrimage, I almost felt that you had reached a sort of transcendence. Um, and like Stein, you didn't need to begin your old life again. You could just begin. Mm. What a That's a wonderful way to read it. I, and I love that quote of hers. Um, I also particularly like the idea of the continuous present, because mm-hmm. I think that in some ways, that's what all of these monastic disciplines are trying to teach you to do, to be mindful of that continuous, the fact, the way in which the present is continuous. Or, for example, in the Orthodox world, the Last Supper is actually known as the Perpetual Supper, that the Last Supper is with us at every moment. Every time we sit down with friends to break bread, we are in one form or another reenacting the the continuous present of that Last Supper. So uh, whether at the end I'm just beginning... Uh, I would hope that in some ways I'm just beginning, but I suspect that, uh, as is the case with, with every writer, you, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you, you are beginning again. And uh, uh, the, the, the book ends with me uh, having uh, gone through this, uh, witnessed this wonderful ceremony on Bright Monday, the day after, uh, uh, on Easter Monday, and, uh, uh, and I'm walking away from the monastery that uh, at the end of the first, uh, pilgrimage. I had I had glimpsed it as a place that seemed to me it, it, it was a place I wasn't going to get to. I had to get home, and I thought that it struck me as as a place that uh, where I might have found some kind of solace. And then in the next monastery, it's the place where I meet this monk, and I, I'm introduced to the world of the cellars and the inner workings of it. And then and then at the end of the book, I'm walking away from it, and as I'm walking away, you know, away, moving fast already. I've got to get back to the ferry, got to get back to my life. And as wonderful as what it is I've just experienced has been, my mind's already starting to think about life back in the world. Mm-hmm. And suddenly I hear this bell ringing and uh, and I turn around and I'm, it turns out I'm in just about the same place I had been at the first, mon- the first uh, pilgrimage. And I see the whole procession of monks heading back into the monastery. And I realize that's it. It's, it's that bell ringing, the bell that calls us to service, that, that calls us to the, the, to the, into the church, that, that we hear at, at any number of hours during the day that reminds us of what our obligations are. And I thought that's, that's what it is. I mean, this is not, this, this, this journey of course is not over. And, uh, once again, I've, you know, I'm, I'm already in the world again. Oh no, wait a minute back, be present, be in this this place and mm-hmm. and partake of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I found it to be a phenomenally hopeful uh, conclusion. Um, I was, <laughs> it, was, it, it was very encouraging. Um, I guess, I guess sort of on that, that topic, um, you talk a lot about miracles um, uh, throughout the work. There's a, a number of times when you travel to monasteries and um, monks will describe to you some uh, phenomenal act that has occurred here. Um, it seemed like almost every place you went, there was another story yeah, about miracles. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was there was a great passage um, I really liked, I think, from your third pilgrimage, 
um, or perhaps it was the end of the, mm-hmm. the second pilgrimage, um, about a monk telling you a story, I guess, of, it was it was almost like two miracles in one. Yeah, well, you know, the funny thing is, is St. Paul, of course, described miracles as one of the, the one of the the things that the, the believers uh, recognize as sides of God. And, uh, on the Holy Mountain, the monks take uh, miracle stories quite seriously, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, which for somebody raised in the West uh, of a skeptical bearing, it's, it's kind of interesting. So here's here's just one of those stories. Uh, the old monk remembered working in the forest when a wolf attacked a mule. And this comes out of the fact that I'd, uh, there had been a rumor of the wolves returning to Athos that summer, and I actually had seen a wolf one day and, uh, and followed its uh, its uh, loping tracks through the uh, through the through the dust for mm-hmm. for quite a while. The old monk remembered working in the forest when a wolf attacked a mule, tearing a chunk of flesh out of its hindquarters. That night, the other mules formed a circle around the injured animal to protect it from another attack, and the mule recovered. Nor was the monk surprised to hear that wolves had returned to the holy mountain. Resurrection was his theme, after all. And he had another story of a miraculous healing. A wealthy businessman from Thessaloniki fell from a ladder and broke his elbow. He was rushed to the hospital where six doctors attended to him, and while being wheeled into the operating room, he he prayed to the saints. A local anesthetic was administered. Nothing happened. Then a bolt of energy surged through his arm, healing the break. The doctors were about to give him more anesthetic when he told them that he was fine. They did not believe him, not even after he banged his elbow on the table to prove his point. "'You'll be back in three days begging for surgery,' said the chief resident, "'and I won't operate.' But the businessman was healed, and instead of returning to work, he asked his wife for permission to enter a monastery on Athos, which she granted. She was a pious woman, said the monk, at her memorial service of dove flew into the church and circled her casket three times. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. That was uh, Christopher Merrill reading from Things of the Hidden God, uh, Journey to the Holy Mountain. That that really struck me as a, a sort of funny passage uh, in context, just because it was such a modern uh, a modern story, and um, you know, the book is just wrought with uh, images of the Virgin Mary appearing, and um, you know, paintings surfacing out of the sea after being submerged for 500 years. Sort of these antiquated stories, but for the monk to choose to tell you that story, I yeah. thought was very very fascinating. Yeah, no, no, and, and uh, uh, they, they said the only thing that, uh, that, that that gossip travels around the Holy Mountain even faster than the speed of light, and uh, uh, and and the other thing that flies around the Holy Mountain are these miracle stories, some of which are set in antiquity, and some of which are uh, set in, in in the present. In fact, uh, one monk every time I saw him, he, he had new miracle stories to tell me from <laughs> from Cyprus or from Jerusalem or uh, from wherever, and, and you know, and I thought, well, that's he believes this, and, and he's not mad; he's perfectly sane and well read, well writes beautifully, and uh, but it's just a different orientation to the world than we are accustomed to, particularly in the in the skeptical West. Mm-hmm. Did you? Did you ever witness anything that you believed to be miraculous while you were there, or just sort of um, seeing what other people um, perceived? Yeah, no, I'm not so sure that I would say that I saw anything miraculous, um, although I have met people who have experienced such things. But mm-hmm. for me, I, I mean, I guess I would uh, define miracle in more uh, ordinary terms, just the 
the miracle of hospitality granted to somebody uh, from afar, um, uh, the miracle of somebody taking the time to try to explain something to you and to to help you get from here to there, um, the miracle after uh, finding that one's uh, uh, taste buds seem rather jaded to to, uh, to eat these uh, uh, tomatoes grown in the gardens there and the and the olives and the wine that's made there and this incredibly sweet drink, this incredibly sweet water that comes out of the spring, to, to recognize that that tastes almost miraculous because in, it, in its simplicity. Um, that has to do, I think, with um, being mindful, being present, uh, recognizing what's actually going on around you. That, those are kind of smaller miracles, but maybe that's the kind of miracle that uh, I was uh, privy to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very simple definition of miracle, yeah. but a very beautiful one nonetheless. Um, you talk about at one point um, how the three wor- words um, heal, whole, and holy share the same root word, uh, which I thought was sort of a very telling connection about um, the point of your piece. Um, it, it really seemed to resonate um, to me as you sort of came came to the end of your journey. And, you know, all movement between secularism and uh, religion aside, it seemed that these pilgrimages did, in fact, make you personally feel more whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the, the book like? had a the, the book was. I think we all, you know, D. H. Lawrence said we write to shed our our, our sicknesses. Uh, in some ways, many times we write to heal ourselves of confusion, of anxiety, at least for the duration of the writing. Uh, in this case, I was in, in particularly in that passage. I was concerned with uh, uh, the the Orthodox Church. Uh, the, the the patriarch is called the Green Patriarch. They take the uh, the state of the earth uh, uh, very seriously, and so I was. The monks were always saying to me it was too hot. They they were concerned with uh, global warming, and and so it seemed to me that to talk about the healing of the earth, the healing of the soul, the healing of a marriage, all of these things could be linked together in a book. Mm-hmm. Was that something that felt? miraculous to you in that uh, simple definition of the miracle that we were just talking about? Or was it something that you felt that you put a lot of energy and effort into? Um? Well, I think, the, you know, the one thing, I, one monk said to me at one point, what, what have you learned from your uh, uh, your pilgrimages to, to Mount Athos? And I said, well, I think the, at this point, the only thing I've learned is uh, uh, how sinful I am. I'm, I'm becoming so conscious of, of all of what I do wrong. And he smiled and said, well, you're making progress. And I thought, well, maybe that's what he's talking about is an essential kind of truth-telling without which uh, we can make no progress. At the heart of any healing, uh, the spiritual, physical, otherwise, uh, we begin with truth-telling. We begin with trying to understand what it is we're doing. What are we missing? What, what, uh, how have we acted wrong? How have we, how have we sinned? And becoming aware of that is the first step the monks would say toward regeneration toward that's the first part of what faith is it's not certainly nothing consoling about it it's not that if i imagined i was off in search of solace what in fact i was in search of i think was a deeper relationship between me and god predicated on a deeper understanding of who i am 
in all of my faults, and mm-hmm. out of that might come a a, a different kind of relationship, mm-hmm. which, with any luck, would extend into other parts of my life. Yeah, it sounds like it, it definitely did extend into those other parts of your life. Um, well, I mean, you know, at, at moments it seems to, and then it, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's uh, uh, that that's, uh, uh, you know, I live in I live in the world, and it's full of I, I have. Many, many. Uh, what what I feel in the world is is how far I am removed from what it was I experienced on Mount Athos, and so uh, I try to remember what the monks uh, were teaching me when I was there. Mm-hmm. Are you planning Are you planning another trip back? Oh, I think that uh, one monk said to me that there there are some people who uh, uh, when they they think so much about Mount Athos when they die, their bones end up on Mount Athos, and maybe I'm one of them. <laughs> Well, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been it's been really great having you on the show, and I really did enjoy reading your book. Um, if you enjoyed today's show, you can hear Christopher Merrill read tonight at 7 p.m. in the Rackham Amphitheater at 9.15 East Washington on the fourth floor. Uh, thanks again to our engineer, Chaz Barrett. And thank you so much for listening, uh, listening in today. Uh, you've been listening to the Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM 88.3 Ann Arbor. Stay tuned. Sports Report. Michigan with the ball at the Michigan State 21-yard line. Three wide receivers, two far, one near. Henny under center. He'll drop back to pass. Looks for Edwards in the end zone. Jump ball. And it is caught by Braylon Edwards. Braylon Edwards in the back of the end zone. Gets the touchdown for the Wolverines. And the comeback is almost complete. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to your daily sports report, your Wednesday edition of DSR. This is Rushi Vias here alongside with Stu Zas, Cheryl Friedman, and Steven Schuster behind the glass. And let's get it right kicked off right away with some Michigan news. What's going on around campus today, Stu? Well, not much today, but it was a good weekend for the Wolverine athletes on an individual basis as seven players were named Conference Players of the Week. And we'll start with women's soccer, where Katie Myler not only was named Big Ten Player of the Week, but today she was named Buzz or Soccer Buzz. She was named a member to their elite team, which I'm sure is a big honor for her. She scored two game-winning goals over the weekend, leading women's soccer team to a 2-1 upset victory over number 24 Illinois, and then a 2-1 win against Iowa. And with those two wins over the weekend, women's soccer improved to 7-5-4 and four in the season and 3-2-2 two, and two in Big Ten play. 
Moving on to hockey, where junior Chad Kalorik and sophomore Jack Johnson were both named CCHA Players of the Week. Kalorik received the offensive honors with four goals and three assists in Michigan's two victories over the weekend. 